It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZD Community Show and this show are also available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the shows. The start of 2020 has been tumultuous for the whole world. In the midst of a fight against climate change, humanity is also trying to manage the changing disruption the COVID virus is wreaking on the world. Here to discuss the implications of what is happening is well-known Australian environmentalist Paul Gilding, well-known advisor in sustainability, who wrote in 2011 a book called The Great Disruption. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great. Good to be here. Paul, Thomas Friedman from the New York Times described your 2010 book or 2011 book, The Great Disruption, as the moment when both Mother Nature and Father Greed have hit the wall at once. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the book and how that ties in with what his comments are? Yeah, sure. Look, I think it's always been pretty clear to me that the world wouldn't change profoundly until it actually hit the limits. And what I mean by that is, as Tom Friedman talked about, when our rapacious uh, consumer-focused society um, came up against the physical limits of Mother Nature and the Earth to provide for it. And what Tom Friedman meant by the clash between Mother Nature and Father Greed was that Father Greed would keep on taking and taking until it was physically unable to do so. And that, to me, was the essence of my book, to argue that we would only change when we hit those limits, um, when the physical, social, economic, environmental impact was so acute and so in our face, if you like, that we had no choice but to be forced to change. And that was the the kind of essence of my argument. Your book looked at the GFC, the global financial crisis, and now we're in the midst of a COVID crisis. Was the global financial crisis the trigger or now the virus or is it a, a continuum? Look, I think that the the, two, the global financial crisis was really the beginning of the process. Um, it's very clear in history that there it often takes a number of shocks. You get a sort of first shock and an aftershock before change really occurs. I think the global financial crisis was the first indication of us hitting the limits. Um, but then by its very nature, contracting the economy, um, sort of reduced the pressure on those limits and then we come up against them again. And that, I think, is the normal the normal way these things tend to unfold. I think the, the COVID-19 crisis is different but similar. It's different in the sense, of course, it's not a physical constraint in terms of capacity for resources, but it absolutely is a consequence, uh, both directly and indirectly, of an unsustainable economy, which is both rid- ridden by inequality, but also by consuming resources beyond the rate of the capacity of the earth to support it. And therefore... 
we now see those those limits being hit again. And I think I think we'll bounce back again a few times against those limits still. But I do think this is going to force a major change um, in the way people think. But you can be absolutely certain that the neoliberal kind of philosophy will fight to regain its preeminence in this context. It's going to be harder and harder for it to do so. Um, but I do think we are going to see a very strong pushback by traditional incumbent industries to, to get back to where we were. It just means that each time this happens, each time people's attitudes change, each time the physical resources get more constrained, each time the climate change impacts get stronger, the harder and harder it is for them to do so. Paul, can we step back a bit and define a few of these terms? You just mentioned neoliberalism, we've got capitalism, we've got a sustainable or steady state um, system. Can you perhaps explain those to the listeners? Sure. I think I think there's, it, it is a very confusing area because there are so many terms and they're used um, often incorrectly. So I think it's important to recognise that there is what I call free market fundamentalism. That is sometimes referred to as neoliberalism, but even that can be, you know, varying in its terms. But it's the idea that, you know, markets do work. Markets have been around for millennia in various forms. Um, what we have today is a system of free market fundamentalism, i.e. where we think the market, market can fix everything and government is inherently a bad actor getting in the way of progress and limiting what, what we would like to do as a, as a civilization. That's clearly not true. Um, it's clearly from the climate change impacts, from COVID-19, from many, many other examples, we said that the market left of its own devices will always uh, go too far and cause more and more damage um, across society unless it is constrained. That doesn't mean that capitalism can't work, doesn't mean that markets are inherently wrong, doesn't mean that business is like the, the cause of all of our problems. What it means is that the markets only work when government regulates and controls the behaviour of the market uh, to suit what the society needs as a set of outcomes. And the most obvious example there is climate change, that that the market will inherently keep on producing more and more CO2 emissions until it's physically stopped from doing so by a collapsing economy um, driven by climate change impacts or by regulation and government mandate. And that's what I think is the critical thing here, is that we have to understand that there is an incredibly important role for government, not to own the means of production, not to nationalise all industries, but to, to guide and put limits around how the market behaves to get the outcome that we want as a society for our benefit. Do you think that what's happened with COVID-19 here in Australia, has, has the federal government been very proactive and positive in forcing change on the market? Look, I think, I think it's actually been really surprising and, and pleasingly so that a government that we all thought was so far to the right, it was more like a kind of Trumpian kind of view of the world that has actually done a reasonably good job in its response. It hasn't, you know, bailed out many companies. It hasn't gone over the top in terms of protecting existing industries. It's rather more focused on the individual and providing economic support to people. Not perfectly. There are many people who have been left out in that process, of course, and there have been many quite devastating impacts. But compared to how we've seen the US behave, for example, I think it's done a, a reasonably good job and it has actually acted in the interest of society as a whole. There was actually a very good 
article the other day by Richard Flanagan, who was a you know arch critic of the Morrison government, actually saying, you know, all things considered, we've been pretty well served by this government because it has not um, defaulted to its ideological position. It's taken the action necessary to try and protect the economy and to look after people. Now, of course, it could have been done better, but it actually has done better than, say, the UK, um, better than the US, better than many countries have done, where they've tended to bail out existing industries and preference corporate support rather than helping individuals to, to keep afloat uh, at a personal level. It's interesting then that they have been so responsive and they've gone outside of their ideological setup to do this for the virus, but they have, haven't done this for climate change. Yeah, totally, totally fascinating and exactly the right comparison to make. So why is that? You know, there will be many people who will discuss this for years to come. But the critical thing I think to learn from it is not that they haven't, but that they could if they chose to do so. And that the public would support strong action in their own interest by a credible government acting in their interest. And so therefore, the theme of, of, of BZE's work, you know, we could, we could drive a radical transformation of the Australian economy towards zero emissions and with the right communication and the right approach by government, the public would support that. Not universally, of course, they never do, but generally speaking, people are ready for action by government uh, to protect society as a whole. Now, ideologically, this government has resisted that and it's become a, a kind of a, a badge of, of, of pride, if you like, not to be a climate change advocate for this government. But it'll be very, very interesting to see how that changes after this, that whether or not they see the action to address emissions as being an opportunity as a way of driving, you know, quite a radical restructuring of the Australian economy in a good way towards places where there are jobs um, when we're going to need them very desperately. Because the reality is that existing fossil fuel companies, for example, don't actually create or hold many jobs these days relative to what we could generate by driving a transformational change towards a zero carbon economy. And that's a really important lesson, I think. The second thing I'll say, which is, I think, super important, is that this government, and again, I refer to the Richard Flanagan article, um, who talked about the fact that early on, uh, the Morrison government said, we are going to be guided by the experts. Now, of course, they don't do that on climate change. But in this case, they've said, yeah, this is so scary and so serious for our society as a whole that we need to suspend our ideological beliefs and take advice from the experts as to what we should be doing. Uh, to maximise the benefit to society. So that, of course, approach taken to climate change would lead to a radically different set of economic outcomes um, and, and we'll, you know, time will tell whether or not this experience guides the government in that direction or not. Paul, let's go on to talk about the steady state that you mentioned. You think that we should be creating a steady state system to manage what's going to happen can you describe that in a bit more detail? Yeah, look, the, the basic idea of, of economics, if you go back to the very early, you know, John Stuart Mill and further forward of the very earliest people who thought about markets, economies and how markets could work, they pretty much all referred to us a, a, a time, a process, whereby we would go through the process of fixing the economic problem, i.e. people having enough stuff, enough food, enough housing, enough security, and then we would move on to a different phase when we actually just focused on quality of life. Um, and we 
we've kind of got to that stage in Western countries, not equally distributed, but we have enough wealth in Western countries to, to, to satisfy everyone's, you know, not just basic needs, but quite satisfactory and high quality of life needs. And we keep on going, assuming that we need more and more in that process. And that's, you know, the idea of infinite growth is that we only have one idea, and that's to grow the economy. And that's obviously to anyone who looks at it, so that can't happen forever. I mean, at some point, you know, more and more stuff, more and more consumerism, more and more, you know, whatever, isn't going to make us any happier or improve our quality of life. We have to move on to things that are actually intrinsically more valuable. Now, that doesn't apply globally, and it's not equally distributed, but it does imply at a certain point you get to what is called a steady-state economy. That doesn't mean things don't change. Things will always change. We'll always have new ideas, new technologies, new developments, new opportunities to do things better. But we won't be physically growing the economy. We won't be physically consuming more resources. We won't be physically consuming physical goods. We'll be more focused on services and the like. And that's the idea of a steady-state economy. It's not about things being the same every day or not developing. It's about recognising there is a, a stable, sustainable economy built on a permanently renewable series of resources that enable us to keep doing so. And that's the idea behind that. And obviously, if we don't do that, eventually you run out of resources, you run out of land, you run out of climate capacity, you run out of water, etc. And and so it's 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 kind of pretty obvious that you need to move to a state if you plan to be around for thousands of years of a stable economy. And a steady state isn't a great word because it sort of it, it phrases it as a as all the same, not changing, which is not the case. But it is a steady state in terms of its impact on the environment uh, around it. If you've just tuned in, we're talking with Paul Gilding on his book, The Great Disruption, and how it applies to us now. With regard to that, a steady state situation, there's always the elephant in the room, the global population. Would that change? Look, there's no need for it to change. The issue with population is, of course, having less people is, by definition, using less resources on an average across the economy. But it's it's incorrect to think of population as being the source of our problems. It tends to have quite racial overtones that people who argue that uh, tend to be Western people arguing that the global population is the issue, which kind of implies that it's really those those brown and coloured people out there having too many babies that cause the problem. George Monbiot wrote about this recently, um, and I think wrote a very good piece on it. And and the argument is is that you know less people. Uh, would be better, and population control is the answer. And it just doesn't stack up with the numbers. Of course, less people overall in the world would make the task easier. And if we had 3 billion people rather than 7, you know, if we had kept at 7 rather than going to 11, that'd be easier. But the reality is, it's the people in rich Western countries doing most of the consumption that is causing the problem. And the, the population growth we're seeing is amongst people who are actually very poor, uh, who aren't consuming much resources and aren't making the problem any worse as a result. So we have to be very careful to recognise population is not irrelevant, but it's really consumption and economic growth on a per capita basis that is causing the issues that we face. So I'm I'm very sceptical of the focus on population. I think it is playing into the hands of those who would give it racial overtones and nationalist overtones. And I think we have to be very careful not to get caught up in that and, and the numbers are very clear 
that that is the case. Yeah, and, and let's put some numbers out there. So, for example, between now and 2050, as I wrote about in The Great Disruption, you know, we planned, uh, you know, if we go from 7 to 10 billion people, let's call that a 30% increase in population, therefore a 30% increase in impact. Sounds like a big problem until you think about the fact that during the same time frame, on a per capita basis, we plan to drive a 300% increase, a 300% increase in consumption. And that just shows you that just by the numbers, by the facts, what this shows is that consumption is the main driver of environmental impact, the main driver of increasing CO2 emissions. And it's primarily people in rich countries like us um, who are driving that process. It is primarily, primarily not people in poorer countries in Africa and Asia, which is where the population is growing so strongly, that are actually having much impact simply because they don't have enough wealth to create much negative impact. What you're really saying is that we need to target the Western world, which is so much richer at the moment, and per capita, as you say, is using so many more of the Earth's resources to try and achieve this steady state. Are we actually just kicking the can down the road? Because in the meantime, that means that other countries, less privileged countries, will be able to come up and get to the to the level that the Western world is at the moment and then use as many resources as we are? Look, it's a really interesting question because I think what we uh, see in a globalised world is a very different approach to development than we had, say, 30 or 40 years ago. It used to be the case that rich countries would, would sort of carve out the way forward, invent the technologies, create the wealth, and then poor countries would catch up and follow their lead. Um, that's no longer the case. And that's really important in response to your question to recognise that we are now seeing a situation where poorer countries are more likely to leapfrog what we're doing and it's not the case that rich countries will get there first anymore. And we see that in, in you know, India, in villages in Africa, uh, in China, in many cases now where the uh, contrast to, say, the US economy you know, is very, very clear that those developing economies, because they're, because they're literally developing, because they're investing in new infrastructure, because they're building new energy systems, are in many cases uh, going ahead of us in the way they do things. Now, of course, we need to distribute the wealth more effectively. We need to recognise that it's a, a process of limiting the absolute, absolute emissions that we cause on climate, limiting the absolute amount of resources that we consume across the board, and giving rights to access those reasonably equally across the world between countries. But it's not as simple as the rich countries get there first and developing countries stay dirty and then follow. It's much more the case, as we've seen with uh, telephone technology and other examples, that, that poor countries often leapfrog what we've done and move to a different state much faster. Do you see this change, if it is to occur, will this start in Australia or countries and then spread to the rest of the world or the Western world? Yeah, yes, that, that's why it's so important to have these trials and tests that are going on around the place. So, for example, the New Zealand government uh, in its last budget talked about a wellbeing budget and had, had sort of criteria against which the, the budget should be designed which are focusing on quality of life, education, health, and so on, as opposed to economic growth. There is a sort of coalition of, it's called, it's called the sin countries, funnily enough, 
Oh, Scotland, Iceland and New Zealand, all led by women, which is interesting, uh, yeah. who have formed an alliance across those three countries, led by women to argue for new approaches to measuring well-being and new approaches to economic growth to have it more focused on quality of life rather than on just purely on numbers and consumption. So we are seeing those things being trialled. Um, it will always, as it always does, an economy start on the edges uh, and move towards the centre, but we're seeing trials for universal basic income, we're seeing you know, trials for wellbeing budgets, we're seeing uh, trials for different measures of GDP or different ways of measuring progress rather than GDP. So I, I do think that will occur and, and crises like COVID-19 will accelerate that process just because it will force a much greater reflection uh, in terms of how people see what's possible uh, and also a greater reflection in terms of seeing what's important in that process. It's quite alarming when you separate climate change out of all the other issues that are happening in the world, and you've highlighted a few of them. What will it take for governments to, or leaders in general, to actually understand what they need to do? You, you know, in most countries, they've listened to the scientists and they've listened to the health experts talk about what needs to be done for the COVID crisis. But what needs to happen in order to address the, the massive number of different issues that are occurring around the world now? Yeah, look, the, the essence of my book was to argue that, that we don't change as a society and therefore to answer your question directly, politicians won't change until they're forced to by circumstances um, that mean the current approach no longer works. So we're not going to, for example, address inequality until we face up to the consequences of not addressing it, which are economically very, you know, very difficult. And a good example is the US, where we're seeing that the pandemic is much, much harder to deal with as a result of inequality. You know, we're seeing in Australia, the government had to suddenly increase the new start allowance, you know, the job, job seeker, and double it because they recognised that they didn't do that, then we couldn't manage the pandemic. And so, you know, again, we saw this in World War Two. people really are... Um, people really are, are facing a, um, uh, a physical constraint uh, where they're forced to think more deeply about the consequences um, of the current system and only then will they be forced to change. That's a bit sad to hear. But yeah, but it's, it, is, it, is, it is always sad to face that level of reality um, it was very kind of a sad process writing my book in that sense of acknowledging the way human, humans behave. But it is consistently what happens um, is that we, we tend to wait until the shit hits the fan um, before we're then able to respond adequately. Do you think what you proposed about 10 years ago is still relevant today or are there other things that are coming into play now? I actually, think, I actually think it's becoming more and more relevant. Um, but I, I do think we see in the pandemic response around the world, and especially in Australia, really strong action by government to support individuals, effectively with a universal basic income, really. I mean, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not universally spread and not everyone gets it, but there is a just phenomenal amount of money going to individuals to stay at home. And I think we are going, people are, as a result, reflecting on their lives, you know, thinking deeply about what their priorities are and questioning consumerism and so on. So I, th I think, yes, the answer is absolutely. We are moving into a phase where people are going to be questioning 
you know, why do they work the way they work? Do they need to earn that much money? Is their quality of life living in a big city as good as it as it could be? Uh, lots of talk about people moving to regional areas and so on. So I, I think we are going to see some big philosophical changes in that area, which are also going to drive economic change because people's behaviour will change as a result. Paul, let's go to the year 2030. Can you describe what it might look like in Australia from your point of view? Yeah, boy, that's hard. Um, so so I, think, <laughs> I think we will be suffering uh, the inevitable consequences of climate change very severely by that stage um, because of the lag between emissions and the climate system's response. We are going to be seeing... A, a really big impact uh, still in 10 years' time. By then, I'm very confident we will have, you know, been well advanced in the transition to renewables. I think we'll, you know, the the fossil fuel industry will be a rump of its former self. Um, we'll have lost all political credibility and public support, um, and I suspect we'll be all but gone and all but irrelevant in terms of the national economy, um, and that will be a process we'll be seeing internationally. Um, I think we'll be seeing massive growth at that point in the hydrogen economy, you know, for export in renewables in very large, you know, energy energy developments around the country. Um, I think we will have pretty much concluded the transition to electric vehicles. Um, I think we will see by that stage quite a, a significant shift in diets away from uh, traditional livestock practices towards both a combination of plant-based foods and alternative sources of protein being developed now by the food industry. And, and I think we'll see a much um, more measured approach by our political leaders to, uh, to, to issues like equality uh, and to issues like uh, uh, fairness in our economic system uh, to enable people to live you know, more decent lives without having to rely upon uh, the more brutal aspects of free market fundamentalism. Paul, where can our listeners find out more about this? Look, there are lots of organisations working on this internationally. Um, if you just do any search for status out economy or new economy, uh, you'll find lots of interesting work in this area. Um, the Centre for Policy Development in Australia uh, has done some great work on what this might look like and how to think differently about the future of the economy. Um, so there, there's a lot of work out there. My website has a whole range of blogs and posts with lots of references that give people further information. Great. Thanks so much for your time today, Paul. Okay, good. Thank you. We've been speaking to Paul Gilding, independent writer and advisor on sustainability. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.